You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. We are back with Stacy Aldrich, who is the state librarian of Hawaii. How cool is that? So Stacy has had more than 20 plus years experience in the library world and obviously is now the state librarian of Hawaii. And prior to Hawaii, she served as a deputy secretary for the Office of the Commonwealth Libraries in Pennsylvania and a state librarian of California. She's also worked in the public and academic library areas. And in between, she took a detour to work as a senior associate at the Futuring Think Tank of Coates and Jarrett. So this is really, really cool. And I know this conference is about libraries in the future. And we always get excited for this because we have to talk to like-minded people who like to see into the horizon. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. I'm honored to be with you. So let's start with Hawaii. How did you end up in Hawaii? And you were you originally from PA or were you originally from? Um, so I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, but my father was in the military, so I grew up all over. So as an adult, my husband and I, also a, an Army brat, um, we've continued that travel thing. And we've, we've been all over, and I've been very lucky to have opportunities to work with so many people in libraries and build the future. Pennsylvania was a political position and the governor had never changed. Holly's had two terms for more than 50 years and I came in under a governor who was voted out. So I wasn't sure if I was going to have a job. I knew the state librarian of Hawaii. He was retiring. So I thought Hawaii would be a plan B in case I don't have a job and uh, the secretary of ed picks their own team. And so I applied um, to Hawaii, and I was lucky enough to get the job. Um, I would have still had a job in Pennsylvania. That was the good news. But Hawaii is just so amazing because uh, you're a state librarian, but you're also a director of a large public library system. I was going to say, that's kind of a challenge, too, because you're not just doing the nebulous state library thing, overseeing everything, but you're actually running running a library as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. That's got to yeah. be a little bit of a challenge. Um, it is. It's lots of fun. I work with great people. The culture here is warm and inviting and, and, and people want to, to be good and to work together. And so I feel very lucky to be in Hawaii. That makes all the difference when your culture really is robust and positive. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. How did you become a futurist? So when I began work, I actually was at the State Library of Maryland. At the time, it was the Division of Library Development and Services. I was a young librarian, and it was when the internet was first starting to become embedded in the libraries. So Maryland had the Sailor Network in like 1993, 94, when the first state internet access. And when I would travel around to train people, there was just this feeling of gloom and doom and overwhelmed, being overwhelmed. And so I came back to my boss and I said, we got to do something to help people think about the future and to be more proactive in building the future. So we started working with futurists and having conferences and working and sending um, directors to conferences across the country that were future-oriented to start thinking about we're not um, victims to the future, but we're, we're actually builders of the future. And in that work that I was doing, one of the futuring groups asked me if I'd apply to, you know, to work with them. And so I tried it out. <laughs> and I left libraries for a short amount of time. It's really interesting because... Library land doesn't always tend to think about the future that much. I mean, I, I maybe I should preface that by saying like 10, 15 years ago, yes, we were dealing with the internet and we were having now OPAC instead of card catalogs and, and there was that transition. And I think 
there was a lot of initial resistance to that, to the, the digitization of what we do. And mm-hmm. it seems as though that the tide has finally turned and there's more of an embracing of the technology because obviously as the younger librarians come into the um, into the fray, you know, uh, they bring that tech knowledge with them. Has that been your experience too, that there's been more of an embracing of technology in the field? I mean, I could say just from, from my own standpoint here on Long Island, it ebbs and flows. Yeah, I, mean, I think it, you know, William Gibson said it best. The future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. I think it depends where you are and it depends on what are the norms of your community and your experiences, whether or not you feel more attached to the digital world. And I think the challenge that we're seeing now is really trying to find that balance between the physical and the digital world. You tend to wait for opportunities. I mean, if you think about our ILS systems, all of us complain about all of them. (laughs) I mean, Amazon had pictures of books on there, you know, that they were showing years and years ago. And so we'd say, well, but Amazon has pictures of books. We want the picture covers to show in our catalogs too. And it took forever to get there. I think, I think we're good at finding opportunities, but I think the challenge is fine. We don't have the right venue to be creative in that space for creating new digital products that we think, and we actually know because we deal with people all the time, we have ideas about how things could be better. And I don't know that companies always value the librarians who bring so much to the table. Well, isn't that really the truth too? I mean, what, there's this stereotype, right? It, it, this, the librarian is behind a desk wearing a sweater that's draped over her shoulders. Her hair is pulled back in a bun. She's wearing pearls. Maybe there's even a pencil stuck in her bun in her hair, and she's shushing everybody. You know, she's got yeah. the glasses on the wire and the, the whole thing. And mm-hmm. even though that's a 1940s, 1950s view, it seems as though that stereotype is always there. There was a New York State lottery uh, commercial about a year ago where somebody was doing a scratch-off in what was supposed to be, I guess, New York Public or something. And mm-hmm. uh, he won. He goes, I won! And, of course, you look behind the desk, and it's that stereotypical person. And what is she doing to him? She's telling him to be quiet by shushing him. And I think it it pains me every single time, and I, I viciously went after them on Twitter for like a week. Uh, <laughs> it didn't help, you know, but whatever. Mm-hmm. I tried. But, you know, how do we get past this this stereotype you know and and what we do is so much different than that and i don't know a single librarian that that fits that prototype anymore and and honestly if that librarian was still working she would be lost you know hand her an Mm -hmm. ipad so it's 1955 what do i do with this you know so in terms of being a futurist i mean yes we have ebooks now we have all these digital services which are amazing and we have maker spaces and all this other stuff but how do we and this is a topic we've talked about to the point where your listeners are probably going to turn off their their device now. But the library is a brand name. Some people say, and we discussed this earlier in this episode as well, some people say it's the best marketing name ever because it has universal – Not everybody knows what it is. You say library, they know what it is. But the flip side to that is libraries are – is there's that stereotypical, well, it's, it's books and maybe it's some computers and, and that's it versus – being changing the entire brand 
as a whole to being a community center, but then you lose, you may lose something in a transition. And is there a hybrid or is there some meeting in the middle of that? So I think that I am fascinated by the fact that you can talk to anybody, what we would call Kiki to Kapuna, a child to a, a senior or an elder, and they will be able to give you that stereotype of a librarian. I almost feel like it's a genetic, it's already embedded in our deep, like our genetic code that that is what I mean, and they may have not even, they've only maybe heard of a librarian once or seen like a picture once, but it, it really sticks. It's interesting because, you know, the, the question is, do you embrace that, that model and then you bridge it to what we are? And I think where we have a problem getting to the future is we talk about, no, we're here. Like you, you're, you're using this model of a librarian that like is 1950s. No, we're over here. But what we haven't done is we haven't told the story that bridges people to how we got here and why we're different. Because there's so many, I think the thing I love about libraries is there's so many different kinds of cool librarians. I mean, that have, you know, from they're all different kinds of people with different ideas and different hair color and tattoos. And, um, but, you know, and you, don't, you don't have to be any of those things. You just, in libraries, we really try to accept people for who they are. And I think, we have to do a better job of that, that bridging story to how we got to something different because people are still in this story. And if you don't bridge it, people can't get to where you are because they're like, no, that doesn't fit my mental model. I don't understand how you got to where you are now or where you're going. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, with it being a primarily female industry, there's a different whole level to, oh, you're a guy and you're a librarian. There's yeah, sure. that struggle on top of it, which is, you know, boo-hoo, I'm a white male. I shouldn't be complaining. You know, it, it is interesting because, at least for me, I can see what it's like because it's, 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 a, it's a role reversal kind of thing. So it's really kind of interesting to see that. Marketing is always something that we, we always strive for. But how mm-hmm. do we, like you say, bridge to the next story? I think that's kind of like that's going to be a local fight with every either library district or library system engaging with the people who come in and quite frankly, reaching out to the people who don't come in and try to getting them, trying to get them in because they need to shatter that stereotype. You know, here I use, um, my bridging is really trying to identify what the role of the library is. And I think sometimes what we run into is we mission creep because we want to help everybody. We mission, we try to do too many things because we become so big. We're like, but we do this, we do this, we do this. People can't wrap their their arms around like what is it that you really do? You're, you're doing this, this, and this. You're about books. So I've spent a lot of time crafting this story about collections and opportunities. So collections and connections and opportunities. So you know we, we used to just collect books. Now we have collections of technology that create access for people. We have collections of things. So people who have tools and cake pans and uh, we now have ukuleles, finally, thanks to Jake Shimabukora and Leo Dikeog from Music Music for Life Foundation here in Hawaii. So I talk about those collections and talking about communities where you need to create opportunities for everybody. So the library is that connector of all these opportunities. We, can, we collect people, too. We collect learning. We collect all these things. And then we connect people to those opportunities. And, and that's what democracy needs to have. And I've found that that helps me bridge to, okay, now I want to do this in the library because this is what the community is asking for and this is where we see a need. And people can wrap their you know their brain around, okay, you're a place, 
you know, collections of these things, we have services. And so we try to keep it really simple. And it took me a little bit of time with one of our local legislative uh, folks, but now he really gets it. And he's starting to connect me with a whole bunch of other people who want to help us create those, those opportunities in the community. And so I think it's about simplifying our message, not expanding the message. And it, it, that really does make a lot of sense. It, in simplifying what we do, as a, we are a community center, and there is not much you cannot do in the library uh, mm-hmm. or take out from the library in terms of your, your check engine light came on. So we have a scanner. You plug the scanner in. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think you hit the nail on the head also with talking to the community. Now, um, whether it's local business members, chambers of commerce, your local politicians, um, or just the people who come in the building, or even better, the people who don't come in the building. Have yep. that discussion, have that conversation. So like when I go out for lunch, I wear my name badge. because Oh, you work at the library, and you start the conversation. So right, maybe right. then you get one more person coming in the door. And yes, we're still about gate counts to a certain degree, but after COVID, it's, it's more than that because of the digital end of things. But I mm-hmm. think when you reach out to your community and see what your community needs, we are kind of the catch-all that try to find find out what the community needs and then provide it to them most times free of charge. Mm-hmm. And that's, yep. that's the best kept secret is most things that we do is free of charge. We've gotten written fines for the most part and the things we do charge for are nominal fees. Like one thing we have here at our library is a poster printer. Nice. So for what we charge, we just um, printed uh, posters for the one of the high school soccer team seniors for senior day. The person who was doing it said that it was going to cost them $80 per poster for mm-hmm. 12 posters. And we, mm-hmm. I think we charged them. It's We just recouped the costs for the paper. So they mm-hmm. paid for what they would have paid for a one and a half posters for the entire project. Nice. So that nice. needs the needs of the community. Absolutely. You know, and, and, Absolutely. and at the end of the day, that's part of our philosophy. That's part of our raison d'etre. It's what we do is we're here for the community. And I think that kind of gets lost in the shuffle that people, especially people who are seniors, you know, late baby boomers, they see it as, oh, well, that's where you go to do schoolwork. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to go or, to do schoolwork. It, it's a mental model, right? So whatever, whatever your experience has been with the library and whenever you kind of you continued your experience because it became a habit, that's a, one thing I'm really fascinated about now is habit. Because I think the future of libraries is helping people create habits with the library. Those are the people who stay with you because they have a habit. So the people who come in and just read the newspaper every day or read it outside, if you allow people to read it outside right now. Um, I, I think our future has to really be focused on how do we, um, how do we help people find what they need and then how do we help them create habit, habit out of it. Right, exactly. Change the mindset. So it's that... I have a colleague who told me this wonderful story. Her um, her parents took her to the library every, I mean, they, their family, they lived at the library. And as her father got older, he had some memory problems and he disappeared one day. They couldn't find him. And they ended up finding him at the library. Because that's what he, he knew. Like that was a good, a good in his mind, that was, that was a good space for him to go to. So um, that habit and, you know, built that exercise where he was going to go. And so I think, how do we build habit in a way that is positive for the people that are in our communities? So one thing that I, I saw from your presentation, we talk, you talked something about 
the physical versus the digital. Mm-hmm. So tell us a about what your thought process is with physical versus digital when it comes to the library. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's a versus. I think it's more of an and. <laughs> um, it's really trying to figure out how do we balance physical and digital? And, and that means our physical materials and our virtual materials and access. And it also means our physical spaces and our virtual spaces. How do we how do we make them function better together? Because in most cases, everything is very separate. There's some libraries who are doing some great integration, you know, with using QR codes to link people to digital things from a physical object. Dr. Um, Neil talked about just putting up banners and having the, the QR codes. And then, you know, there's also people who are experimenting with technology that you can use an app and it'll help you find a book in an aisle. So how do we make it so seamless for people that it's easy, but we don't block people who really aren't into technology? Because there are some people who just don't, they will learn enough to do what they have to do, but they still want the, they still want what they remember. So I think the challenge for us is how we bounce the, the two spaces. Yeah, it, it almost makes sense in terms of, I, I always think in terms of my father who has a flip phone, that's as far as he's going. In fact, if I hand him my phone and he intuitively touches to flip through the pictures, and I go, you're using a smartphone, and he right away gives it back to me. No, oh, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. So how do we make it so the generation that may not have a tech, be technically inclined, or maybe there are just people who are younger that just refuse or don't want to you know, be technologically inclined, how do we preserve the way, and I'm going to use the, probably the dirtiest phrase in library world, how do we preserve the way it's always been done? And I can't believe I just said that. Ugh. At versus moving us forward with the digital end of things. Like the whole idea of being able to use RFID and your phone to locate your book. I mean, that's fascinating to me. That, you know, if you could download something with near field technology where you could, you're looking for, you know, I don't know, Dr. Shivago and you put it in. And it literally, like a Geiger counter, it dra- drags you to the book. I mean, how cool would that be, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. But, but you can't get rid of the the, um, the labels for Dewey or for you know, for for fiction, um, because you don't want to disrupt those that won't embrace the technology. So it really is a catch twenty two. Or why not have spaces that resemble the basics? You have the basics of what people want access to, but then everything else is retrieved. It's like you know, using a vending machine. Something I'm really thinking about here is our main library, our central library has been the library of last resort. So when we start reading to really tiny libraries, how do we make sure things are still accessible? At some point, we have to start thinking about offsite storage that may be just, just a pickup location, or it's just a place where we have everything and can just distribute it. I think how you develop your future is going to depend on a couple of things. It first depends on your resources, but it also depends on the community itself in terms of what it needs and wants. So again, it's that the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. We're all building the future as it relates within our communities. And some things are going to work better than others, um, but we do have to really start thinking about how do we balance that? And then articulating it. I spent a lot of time articulating um, back to the physical and virtual or digital is um, 
the cost. The libraries, it costs more to be a public library than it did in 1950 or 1991. Um, we now have technology that we have, and then all these new um pieces of content that we have that no longer, we don't own them, we're leasing them. So that becomes the other question I have is, what is the real role of the library? Are we leasers or are we owners? What do we have to own? And what's okay just to lease? Yeah, I have a lot of questions, we all do. And I think it's us having these conversations and experimenting with ideas to try to model what's possible and can it really be important for the community with the way to go. And that starts with, you know, scenarios, stories, yeah. Right, yeah. It's a cost-benefit analysis, not just from a monetary standpoint, but also from a human standpoint as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're Absolutely. buying 30 iPads, but you're not doing anything with them, and they're just sitting in, in the charger all day, where's the equity in that? Uh, versus you have iPads, and you have everything on them, and you have an, and you primarily serve an older community that won't engage with the iPads. You know, again, mm-hmm. that's missing the mark as well. So mm-hmm. again, you have to know your community. And here on Long Island, you know, we're different library districts and I, I like to explain it to people who live not from here as they're like little kingdoms, little feudal kingdoms mm-hmm. that are ba- mostly based on school district uh, boundaries because mm-hmm. we don't have a unified county or town or city school district. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is I live in, I live in the adjoining school uh, district to the district I work in and the community is completely different. And you're talking about, I'm, a 10-minute drive from home, but yet the community that, that I live in has different needs and wants than the community that I work in. And I find that fascinating. And you could drive five miles north, and it's a different district, and they have completely different needs and wants based upon this district and the district that I live in. So it really is every library has to be fine-tuned into what's happening locally in their community. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a challenge when people move around. Because they'll say, well, but the, the library I had does this, right? <laughs> like, yep. well, we don't quite do that quite yet. We're, we're getting there. We're working on it. Um, so defining, so I think that goes back to earlier in the conversation, like what is a library? A library can be very different in, in every location. So defining what we do has to be very locally marketed as well in terms of what it is we can do for the community. Absolutely. I mean, just in terms of you could have 10 different libraries and they all have the same 3D printer and you will get different outcomes with each one of them or even just have an iPad with the same material on it and you will get varying statistics based upon if it had all the same apps on it, you would get varying statistics based upon where you are. And some of it is socioeconomic. Some of it is geographic. Some of it mm-hmm. is based on age. Some of it's based on gender. I mean, you could go crazy with stats on trying to figure out how to solve this puzzle. And th- the beauty of it is there is no answer. No, there is. <laughs> and there's no, it's, there's no right answer. It, the only right answer is the direction you just start to go and you try it and you see what works. And if it works, you keep doing it. If it doesn't work, then you try something new. Right. And if it doesn't work this week, it may work next week. And if it worked this week and it doesn't work next week, it could work the week after that. So you got to have some patience with it as well. Exactly. Because again, timing is everything and your community may not be ready for something right away, but it might be ready in a week, two weeks, a year. <laughs> it just, it, that's why you have to be so, I think you really have to be so connected to what's happening around you. 
And it's mm-hmm. always fun when somebody from who just moves into, you know, this this library district, let's say, and say, oh, the library district I came from had that. Like, okay. You pick up the phone, you ring them up and say, uh, what do you have? I heard something about you have this widget thing. Oh, yeah, we have mm-hmm. it. And then you talk. And then next thing you know, it's a collaboration. Now you build a relationship. And next yep. thing you know, you build relationships with everybody who does the type of job that you do through the county, yep. uh, maybe on the whole island. And mm-hmm. you have those conversations. And now you share resources. So it becomes almost a networking thing as well for the profession. And that's the magic of libraries because we are natural um, borrowers of other people's ideas. We don't have to recreate the wheel. <laughs> exactly. We love to share. Yep. To a fault. Yeah. To a fault. <laughs> to a fault. <laughs> to a fault. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Well, we don't have a lot of time because it's part of the conference podcast, but we will. We would like to have you on again, but I wanted to thank you again for coming on with us today and speaking with us and for your presentation at the Long Island Library Resources Council uh, program for today. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity to connect with everybody and to see everyone and to talk about the future and to actually just spend some time thinking about the future, making that time. So thank you. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you.